Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you for this new day. Thank you for the beautiful weather that we've had and uh, unseasonably warm, and just reminding us again that you are completely sovereign and that your providence is in uh, full display as we see the seasons change on their own times and their own seasons. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this chance to be here in this place at Plum Creek Chapel, just worshiping you and uh, pausing all of the distractions of life just for a little bit and being able to think about spiritual matters, think about the words to the songs we're going to sing and uh, just the conversations that we have and mostly the proclamation of your word and the study of your word. So Lord, we give you this time. Pray that you would uh, use it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are continuing our look at uh, a biblical overview of the end times. Um, I don't know about you, but this has been a really enjoyable uh, study for me, just to kind of come at it from a slightly different angle than we have uh, in, before, than I have before, even though we are sort of roughly following my book, What Lies Ahead, same title, um, but we're kind of jumping around a bit. We're not actually going from chapter one all the way through. If you don't have the book, by the way, feel free to pick one up off of the table uh, in the back there. Um, but it's still, uh, it's still interesting how the conversations that we're having, the Q&A that we're having, uh, tends to lead us in one direction or another and focus on one thing more than another. And I do get emails from time to time from people uh, asking, uh, why do we need to study the tribulation in such detail since we as part of the body of Christ won't be here when that's taking place on earth? And uh, I've addressed this earlier on in this study way back at the beginning when we talked about why should we even study Bible prophecy at all. Uh, but the answer is pretty simple. Uh, first of all, it's part of the whole counsel of God. And God revealed Himself to us in His Word and told us everything we need. And if it's in the Bible, we need to study it. He would not put it in the Bible if we didn't need uh, to study it. We're, we're talking on Wednesday nights, as a matter of fact, about how to read and understand the Bible. And uh, if I can interject and put in a quick plug for that, if you're not coming Wednesdays, we'd love to have you Wednesday nights from 6 to 7 right here at Plum Creek. Or, of course, you can live stream it from wherever you are or watch the videos that are recorded uh, that are usually posted by later that night, every Wednesday night. Um, but as we're talking about in our Wednesday night study, all Scripture is profitable. And even though the direct recipients that, are, uh, that, that the message of God's Word in a particular passage is spoken to may not be us, we can still apply it to our lives. It still teaches us something about our Creator. And in the case of the end times, and in specifically in the case of the tribulation, it tells us about how God is going to uh, even the score, about how His wrath that He's been uh, talking about from the beginning of time, since sin entered the world, actually, uh, is going to be poured out, and, and how the injustices and inequities of life will all be made right. And so it's a very meaningful study, very meaningful passage of Scripture. Uh, not only that, uh, we study this because at any given time there are people who by God's providence make their way into Plum Creek Chapel who may not be believers and they need to know that if the Lord were to come back today or if uh, uh, you know well if the Lord were to come back today or in their lifetime they might enter this period of time in human history that the Bible has so much to say about uh, as an unbeliever. And so for those people it is 
especially relevant because they'll be living it. Uh, not only that, we will be in heaven during this time and we will be experiencing many of the prophecies that Scripture talks about that will take place during this time in the heavenlies, such as the beam of judgment, the marriage of the Lamb, those types of things. And we will be coming back with Christ at the climax of this seven-year period. So we are going to be a part of it at the very end, the battle of Armageddon. We will be riding with Christ on white horses for that final battle. So, of course, it's, it is a portion of it directly uh, dealing with us. So there are many reasons why this subject matter of the tribulation is particularly uh, relevant and should be studied, and that's just uh, a few of them. So we have been working our way through using the book of Revelation as an outline, and I think most of you know that the book of Revelation primarily deals with this seven-year period that you see highlighted in yellow there. Uh, it has some opening chapters that deal with the church age, chapters 2 and 3 in particular. It uh, has uh, sections, chapters 4 and 5, that deal with the preparation for the outpouring of God's wrath and what gives God the right to do that and who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath. But then starting in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19, essentially, we are dealing with this seven-year period uh, from the unveiling of the Antichrist at the beginning all the way through to the Battle of Armageddon. So it takes up a lot of real estate <coughs> in the book of Revelation. <coughs> Excuse me, and it also takes up a lot of real estate elsewhere in the Bible. We started out, and uh, we're now in a part 11, as I said, of this portion of the study, sort of a subsection of our study on the end times. And so 11 sessions ago, we were talking about all of the biblical data about the tribulation and the biblical terms that are used in the Old and New Testament alike about uh, the tribulation. So it certainly is a key uh, part of God's plan. It's not just an afterthought. It's not just something, you know, sometimes you get the impression uh, when you talk to people that are maybe less studied about the end times that, oh, the tribulation, nobody really agrees where it fits and where the rapture is going to happen relative to the tribulation. And it's only a seven-year period anyway. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. It is the culmination of God's uh, 490-year plan with Daniel. I guarantee you the original recipients of Daniel's uh, prophecy, 500 years before uh, Christ, four to 500 years before Christ, weren't, weren't blowing off the final seven years of that 490-year plan. They took it as a sum total uh, you know, uh, prophecy, and they wanted to know all about it. And, of course, as we talked about at length in, in a previous session, the four, first 483 years of that 490-year plan have been fulfilled, but the last seven have not. So it is important, and so we've been uh, looking at it through the lens of Revelation. And here, if you sort of overlay God's end times plan on top of a chapter-by-chapter -chapter outline of Revelation, this is what it would look like. And we have already talked about the seal judgments, and we're going to finish up the trumpet judgments uh, today. At least I hope so. I think we're on... Uh, number six. So we only have two left. So if we don't finish them today, then, well, we'll try again next week. But that's my plan. <laughs> anyway, um, and so uh, then we're going to get into the bold judgments, which um, the closer you get to the end of the tribulation, the more details God's Word gives us about the events that are taking place. So uh, we're starting to see as we're going through last week, the fifth trumpet, that it, it, there were seven or eight or nine or ten verses, if I recall, that dealt with just that one judgment. And, and the same thing is going to be true dealing with the final 
uh, climax of the tribulation there, the, the bold judgment in the book uh, and the battle of Armageddon. So um, we start out with the sealed judgments, and that is dealt with mostly in chapter 6, but then uh, the seventh sealed judgment, as you can see, uh, let's go back to this chart here, uh, as you can see represented by these rectangular boxes at the bottom, the first six seal judgments were all judgments of their own. Then, you, then the seventh seal is opened and unwrapped. The scroll is unwrapped, and it contains seven more judgments. And that's what I'm trying to portray by charting it out that way. Uh, we are currently looking at the sixth trumpet judgment this morning. But when we get to the seventh trumpet, it sounds and announces seven more judgments that are represented through a picture of a bowl with uh, smoke coming out of it and judgments pouring forth, overflowing as it were. So the seal judgments, just to review, <coughs> we talked about the first four horsemen of the apocalypse, each one beginning uh, this final stage of judgment. We see the Antichrist being unveiled with the white horse. Uh, then he's granted authority to bring wars on the earth and then uh, famine and then death of one quarter of the world's population. We're going to come back to that again this morning because... In the sixth trumpet, we see another description of more death with a specific number associated with it. But then we saw the tribulation martyrs crying out for vengeance. And then we saw earthquakes and other cosmic disturbances. And then we saw the trumpet judgments. And so the trumpet judgments are discussed in earnest in chapters 8 and chapter 9. And so uh, if we come over here, we left off with the fifth a trumpet judgment, or that's what we've dealt with last week. But to review, the first one, one-third of the earth is burned up, then one-third of the sea turns to blood, then one-third of fresh water is poisoned, the fourth trumpet judgment sounds, and one-third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. We talked about how that would have been so difficult to be dealing with the devastation and judgment and the persecution, especially if you're a believer alive during that time, meaning you got saved after the rapture. Uh, dealing with fleeing from the Antichrist and his minions that are hunting down people. Um, and, uh, and so uh, having this darkness, darker than usual, would have been real difficult, made that especially difficult. And then we spent quite a bit of time talking about the fifth trumpet. Remember the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments are also referred to in Scripture as woes, the first, second, and third woe, indicating their severity and their increasing intensity and so we looked at the first woe which was 12 verses actually the fifth trumpet here now we can see uh, chapter 9 verses 1 through 12 and we talked about um, you know uh, what that what that looks like and then we pick up now in verse 13 with the sixth trumpet or the second Whoa. So let's pick it up in verse 13. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year. Remember that phrase. Just We'll come back to it in a second. The four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So first of all, here's where we are in our timeline. Roughly speaking, obviously this is not drawn to scale, but we're getting closer and closer to the glorious, majestic return of our Savior and King of Kings and Lord of Lords Christ, who's going to come back and take the throne. 
in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. So we're inching closer and closer uh, to that return with this sixth trumpet. Uh, but this sixth trumpet relates to the final military conflict that's described with the bold judgment, and in particular in Revelation chapter 16, that we call the Battle of Armageddon because it takes place in the plains of Megiddo outside of Jerusalem. So at the sounding of the sixth trumpet, John heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And he was instructed, this angel, to release the four angels that had been bound near the Euphrates River. Uh, these four angels are clearly demons because uh, angels, good angels, remember we talked about that last week, are not bound. But we do know that some angels are bound. And these angels were rebound and now are being released uh, to help the Antichrist as he prepares his side of the battle. And notice that phrase, <clears throat> for the hour, day, month, and year, uh, this release of these four uh, demons is specifically timed at a particular moment in human history, indicating God's sovereign plan of the ages. In other words, God, as Jesus himself even said, knows the timetable. Because he's sovereign. He, doesn't, he didn't just read ahead. He actually wrote the book. <laughs> you know, sometimes we try to describe God's sovereignty in terms of foreknowledge, which is a logical fallacy. They're not the same thing. God does foreknow everything, but he foreknows everything because he planned everything. <laughs> um, God didn't just read ahead in the book and say, oh, I see what's going to happen. No, no, he, he wrote the entire book. He's God. He's sovereign. And so the, the language here just reminds us of this fact that this particular time in God's plan of the ages had come. This particular hour, day, month, and year leading up to uh, the return of Christ. And so notice that a third of mankind is killed. Now, if you remember, uh, we went back, if we go back to the uh, seal judgments, we did a little speculating and there was some... Uh, disagreement as we sort of tried to figure out how many people we think are Christians. Uh, some people said, oh, I don't know, not very many. Some people said, no, I think there's quite a few. But anyway, just to pick a number, we said back then that if the rapture were to happen today and the sealed judgments, going back to the sealed judgments, were to start at the beginning of the tribulation, there would be roughly 7.5 billion people on the earth. We said, let's assume that 1 billion of them are believers who are raptured. Again, that does seem kind of high, but it, we just picked a number. Uh, that left 6.5 billion people on the earth at the start of the tribulation. And then with that fourth seal judgment, remember one quarter of the people on earth at that time died, which left us just under 5 billion people on earth based on these um, you know, parameters, these variables that we're just sort of picking uh, based on dead reckoning here. So, but remember, that is only based on the number of people God specifically tells us die. There are many other deaths that undoubtedly are associated with the other seal judgments and so far with the, the five trumpet judgments. I mean, the devastation to, the, to life and fresh water and animals and, and all kinds of things. Not to mention the fact that you have to picture the scene that's going on during this tribulation period. The Antichrist himself and his legion of demons and his armies, you know, whether that's the UN or whoever he picks, you know, whatever you call it at that time, but the one world government over which the Antichrist is ruling 
in, in horrific terror and tyranny. Um, and by the way, we've said Satan, remember, as the prince of demons, is indwelling the Antichrist at this time to really make him do these things and lead him to do these things. Uh, he's out hunting Christians. So people that got saved after the rapture, uh, because either they heard the gospel from the 144,000 specific missionaries that God sets aside at the beginning of the tribulation, Revelation chapter 7, or they heard, you know, a gospel message. I mean, think about it. Uh, uh, how many of you would agree that there are a lot of unbelievers in Denver? Okay, there you go. So if the rapture were to happen, um, and, and by the way, how many of you believe there are a lot of believers in Plum Creek Chapel? Okay, good, just making sure. So if the rapture were to happen, um, this place is going to be kind of left empty, right? I mean, I hope it is. I hope if you're here today, you know the Lord. I hope there's been a time in your life. You may not know the exact day, but I hope you, you can pinpoint a time in your mind's eye that you remember trusting in Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior, as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. It's faith alone in Christ alone is the only means by which we can ever be saved and given the gift of eternal life. And only those who are saved and have eternal life will be caught up together to meet the Lord at the rapture. But let's assume that were to happen today, right? So that means no World Series Game 5 tonight, no Cowboys Sunday night football. I'd be okay with that, though. I mean, in the earthly realm, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a good night. I'm going to pop some popcorn. I'm going to have both games on, flipping back and forth between them. They start at the same time. But you know what? I would be thrilled if I was caught up to meet the Lord with all of you right now today, right? So, but let's just, let's say for illustration purposes that that happens. Well, you know, we're here, the doors are, I assume the doors are still unlocked, right? We don't normally lock them till midway through the service, which we do just as a safety feature. We just don't want some crazy person coming in in the middle of our service, uh, which has happened, you know. Uh, so, but they're unlocked. So we're all gone in an instant, the twinkling of an eye. All unbelievers are left behind. We all agree there's a, quite a contingent of unbelievers in the greater Denver metro area. Um, they're going to be wondering what's going on. There's going to be chaos. There's probably going to be riots. People are going to probably fill the streets. They may make their way to this uh, suburban region of Denver, and they may say, here's a church. Let's go in. And they may come in here, and guess what? They may pick up a gospel track from our table at the back or maybe one in the lobby, they may read the gospel, and in that moment, the Spirit of God may convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they may trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So it's very possible that moments after the rapture, people are getting saved, even apart from the specific missionary endeavors of the 144,000. And that scenario that I just painted for you could happen millions of times all across the globe. So the gospel, Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. So you've got to hear, understand, and believe the gospel to be saved. It's not enough just to hear the gospel. It's not enough just to understand it. You have to believe it. You have to have personal faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. And so that gospel is going to be just as powerful after the rapture as it is today. And people will be getting saved all across the planet as they in, in, encounter the gospel in some form or another. And the gospel is simply put that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So, uh, so my point is, immediately from the beginning of the tribulation, there are going to be believers. Now, the intense persecution of believers, let's go back here, 
doesn't really start until the midpoint. So at the beginning of the tribulation, when someone gets saved, they're not being forced to take the mark of the beast yet or be martyred. Uh, and believers will be martyred. They will not take the mark of the beast. Uh, there's, there's, there's not necessarily a direct attack from the New World Order system and Satan and the Antichrist from the beginning. That really ratchets up at the midpoint when we see the abomination of desolation there. And in particular, at that point, the Antichrist turns his attacks specifically on Israel and believers within Israel. Apostates within Israel are going to just go right along. They're going to sign up for the mark of the beast or do whatever they're told by the government. But believers in Israel uh, are going to be the ones that Jesus told at the midpoint. Uh, you need to, when you see the abomination of desolation, head for the hills, flee for your lives, run for your lives, hide out in caves because it's going to get worse. And then just to kind of finish the thought, by the time you get to the end of the tribulation, the end of that seven years, there will be quite a large population of believers, Jews and Gentile believers alike, who survived in their physical bodies. They, they hid out and weren't captured and martyred. And those are the ones, at least the Gentile believers, to whom Jesus says when He returns, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, uh, the sheep and the goats. The Jewish believers who survive to the end, they are going to be supernaturally gathered up by the angels that Jesus sends at His return to go all across the globe and physically gather them up and deposit them in the land in fulfillment of many, many Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 26, I think it is, and several other passages. So, uh, so that's kind of the way it's going to be playing out. But back to our numbering the dead here. Um, so we said after that fourth seal judgment, not accounting for any other deaths that result from just the devastation and martyrdom and other things that may be going on, we're, we're less than five billion people on the earth. And now we're told that, you know, at the uh, sixth trumpet judgment, we see another one-third dying. So if my math is correct, now we're down to 3.2 billion people. So we're, we're, we're only maybe five or six, maybe six years, let's say, six, six and a half years after the rapture. And in those short six plus years, the world's population has at least reduced to less than half of what it was. Just think about what that looks like in reality. Now, in reality it's actually going to be far less than that. It could be substantially less than that. I mean, we're, we're speculating here. We're, we're just doing math, putting in variables. What if we're wrong? You know, what if there were a lot more believers that were raptured that we didn't know about? Um, well, then that's going to throw our numbers even smaller. But more specifically, what if there were many, many more deaths that are not specifically mentioned with a, with a percentage here, like 25% or 33%, uh, resulting just from the devastation. You know, you have earthquakes, people die. When there are natural disasters, even now, people die. That's what happens. So, so I'm guessing uh, that that 3.2 billion number is probably quite high. Um, my gut tells me, again, this is all speculative because we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. If the Lord tarries His coming, we might be starting with a population of 8 billion or 8.5 billion people uh, to do our calculations. But I'm guessing we're going to be dealing with maybe only 2 billion people globally 
by the time you get to the end of the tribulation. Yeah, question. Yeah. So, or we look at the news of Iceland that says that, you know, they're trying to get it down to 500 million. So that's kind of negating, and maybe positively, none of us want to see people die because of these bad things, but that's kind of going against all the other stuff that we're listening to now. Would you agree? Yeah, so the question is, based on a lot of the stuff that we're, uh, and, and as I always like to remind our listeners online, I will repeat the question. So I know it's frustrating when I take a question from the audience and it seems like silence on your end. I promise to try to remember to repeat every question, so just bear with us. But based on a lot of the stuff we're seeing out there, such as Georgia Guidestones and such as the incredible tens of thousands, if not, according to some people, hundreds of thousands of deaths resulting from the uh, experimental gene editing bioinjections that everyone's getting, uh, it could, you know, these numbers could be way off. That's essentially what you're saying? Yeah, so absolutely. I had a fascinating discussion with a, a dear friend of mine who I've known for many, many, many years. Um, he, I used to teach with him, uh, and we've been talking regularly now just because things are happening so fast. And, and he and I were talking about, again, what this looks like during the tribulation and specifically about the mark of the beast. And we got to thinking, he actually brought it up, what... How, how is it going to be that every human being on earth will receive, or at least they'll try to make them receive, the mark of the beast? I mean, when you think about it, even with all of the technology that we have today, that's not an easy task, right? I mean, you know, it's one thing to send, you know, some goons door-to-door in a mainstream metropolitan American city with syringes in their pocket and jab you on your doorstep. But, I mean, the world's a big place, and there are a lot of remote parts of this world. And how, how is it that during this time the New World Order system is going to be tracking people down? Well, I guess we don't know. The Bible is silent on some of the details, but one speculation is that the technology, and I've talked about this before, the technology that we see with these gene editing, completely first time ever in human history technology that they're calling vaccines but really aren't vaccines, could be setting the stage for this type of thing so that by the time this period in human history arrives, most people already have something floating through their blood in their body that can be triggered and turned on and off. We know that can happen. That's not a fact and dispute. If you look at the, all the doctors that have you know, written about this and journal articles that have talked about this, the graphene oxide, the luciferase enzymes, all the stuff that's in this vaccine that can be used for multiple purposes besides just the stated purpose, which is to allegedly transmit this uh, vaccine that will help prevent COVID in people's uh, lives. Uh, so that's just something to think about. Maybe that, maybe this, we know the stage is being set at any given time, and maybe this is a big step forward. I tend to think uh, that it is. But uh, by this time in the tribulation, at, conservatively, the, the world's population will be half what it was just six years earlier. Uh, and as we get nearer and nearer to the return of Christ, and then, of course, the stuff to the right of the second coming 
it just gets better and better and better. Whereas things are getting worse and worse and worse now, 2 Timothy 3.13, after Christ comes back, it's going to get better and better and better until after a thousand years, time shall be no more. There will be no more sorrow, sadness, you know, darkness, all of the negative things of life uh, will be gone. So uh, we're getting closer and closer and closer. But if we go back to uh, Revelation 9 again and this uh, sixth trumpet judgment, these four demons that are uh, released are in, in used to release or somehow uh, in energize or motivate an army of 200 million troops. Let's read it. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Uh, now this is a verse that's been often talked about in end times uh, literature because for so many years, a lot of the great men of faith that I grew up uh, studying under, who are all with the Lord now, but I had them in seminary 30 years ago, uh, back in their day in the 40s and 50s, uh, it was unheard of to think of an army of 200 million people. I mean, who could even fathom such a thing? But then in more modern times, Time Magazine in 1965 came out uh, with an article, May 21st, in which Red China at the time claimed to have an army of 200 million people. And uh, that began to be big news in all the eschatological literature because now people are saying, ah, see, you know, we often take newspaper and, and news articles and we try to bring that back to Scripture and say this could be that. And so... When the scripture mentions a 200 million man army, Red China says we have 200 million people in our army. It was an obvious connection for people to make. doesn't mean this is that, but it definitely is something that catches your attention. Um, so, uh, you know, some interpreters have tried to suggest that these mil 200 million are demons. But if you notice John's language, John very clearly says, you know, the, speaking of the number of them twice, um, it seems uh, to lend credence to the concept that this is a literal army. Uh, elsewhere, when talking about demons, he's very clear that it's demons, and we have internal clues that it's demons. There's nothing in this internally that would lead us to believe we're dealing with fallen angels rather than human beings. Uh, the horses and their riders have breastplates of red, dark blue, and yellow. The lion-like heads of the horses imply something other than natural horses. Uh, so it's possible that these are, again, hybrids or shapeshifters or uh, some type of demonic spiritual forces. When John tends to describe these pictures of demons like we saw with the previous trumpet judgment, uh, it tends to be this type of uh, fantastical, apocalyptic type of, uh, of vision as he's simply trying to describe what God is revealing uh, to him. Some take this as a picture of modern warfare, including the use of armed vehicles like tanks. But regardless of whether these are some type of spiritualized uh, weapons that have now taken on physical form or actual uh, uh, modern elements of warfare that to John were unheard of. Because remember, he's writing this 2,000 years ago. So it's very possible that God gave him a vision of modern warfare, the types of 
technology that we have today, directed energy, again, tanks and missiles and so forth, and he's just kind of de describing them. Um, it's not uncommon for militaries to paint uh, pictures of serpent heads or whatever on the end of their missiles. You know, we've seen that. Um, so who knows what John was saying here. We can't, all we can do is speculate. But clearly the passage implies a terrible destruction of an awesome invading force that prepares the way for the Battle of Armageddon as we read about in chapter 16. Who, who is this? <laughs> That's who? You're kidding. So I don't know if I can catch this on the, the camera here, but uh, this is the Swiss Guard at the Vatican. Notice anything specific about the colors of that? Yeah. So uh, it's easier for the people live streaming to see this than the people in the uh, in the crowd. Okay, everybody, come up and gather around, and we'll. No, but it's a, it's a yellow, red, and blue. So, by the way, the uh, the can I keep this? The phone. All right, great. What's your password again? Um, so, the the Luciferians, ultimately led by Satan, love symbolism. Absolutely love it. So it would not surprise me at all if those colors were chosen uh, by by design. So, um, by the way, the combined, just to give you some frame of reference, I talked about the 1965 Time Magazine article, but the combined Allied and Axis forces combined at the peak of World War II total about 70 million combined. So you can see how references like 200 million people are like, oh, that can't possibly be. And so a lot of times that's what leads to bad interpretation. We're going to talk about that in our Wednesday night study about you know, rules for figuring out the figurative and when, you, when it's legitimate to take something as a symbolic uh, language and when it's literal. And, but just because we read something in Scripture and it's hard for us to fathom doesn't give us the right to say, oh, well, that must not be true. Because there we were in the 40s saying, well, there's no way it could be a 200 million man army, so this must be symbolic. And then 20 years later, we have a, an army announcing they have 200 million people. And of course, today, it, it's not hard to fathom at all. So by these three plagues, reading on in Revelation 9, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. Uh, again, twice, in any, in, when you're reading Scripture, you look for things that are emphasized, but twice now he's stated one-third of mankind was killed. All right? and then, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So in spite of the devastating nature of this judgment from God, it simply did not bring men to repentance. They continued to worship the Antichrist, to worship Satan, worship demons, 
and their representative idols, and they continued to keep on murdering. It's not hard to imagine how they might be murdering. In the first place, it's just utter chaos, and so people were murdering right and left. We see that anytime there's civil unrest today. Uh, but moreover, there were many people that were at the, working at the behest of the Antichrist and his army out murdering people that wouldn't take the mark of the beast. So murders were very regular occurrence. But notice they were also participating in what the New King James here on the screen says is sorceries or the occult. I've talked about this in my Spirit of the Antichrist uh, series, but that word sorceries is the Greek word pharmakeion, uh, from which we get the English word pharmacies. Um, and so sorceries from their very inception uh, involved taking chemical compounds, mixing them together and, and ingesting them to create all kinds of uh, reactions, Hallucin hallucinations, uh, incapacitation, all kinds of things. Um, so the trumpet judgments clearly grew in crescendo, getting worse and worse, more and more devastating. And by the way, I feel like I need to back up and say one more thing about sorceries there. I know that it's commonplace in our Western culture today to think of you know Walgreens and CVS and pharmacies. And I also know that certainly there have been some medical advancements in the world of pharmacy that are good, that help with certain needed things. But we need to keep it all in perspective. And in 6,000 years of human history, the concept of drugging your way to health is only a little over 100 years old. You, you do understand that, right? That medicine changed with the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations in the early 20th century when they took control of all the medical boards and started funding. And then once they started funding, they got control and then they started changing the entire way medicine is done. It used to be holistic. It used to be about prevention. It used to be about natural remedies. Now it's all about synthetic man-made things. So again, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not trying to say you shouldn't go to Walgreens. Not, not my point at all. Just keep it in perspective and recognize that in the grand scheme of human history, the whole world of pharmacology, which again, goes back to biblical sorceries, <laughs> uh, is a relatively novel, novel thing. So in spite of the clear evidence of God's power to judge the world, John did not see any indication in his vision that people were willing to change their hearts, uh, that is the unbelievers who had taken the mark of the beast. And uh, this sixth judgment produced fear because so much death was happening, but it did not produce uh, repentance, which just shows you how desperately uh, hardened the heart of man is. And so then the seventh uh, trumpet sounds, and we see seven more judgments called bowls, and this is the third woe. So we had the first and the second and now the third woe, and we know this because we skip ahead to chapter 11, you know, we see some interludes here. Uh, after chapter 9, we see the, the interlude or the supplemental details about the little book. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, John is given a vision of a little book. 
God tells them to eat the book, and it contains additional prophecies of judgment that we know nothing about. So even though we know a lot about the judgments that are going to be poured out, there are some that God has chosen not to reveal to us um, and told John not to tell them, even though he revealed them to John. Uh, we also see in uh, the book, in, in chapter 11, the uh, details about the two witnesses that are killed and then resurrected. Um, but then at the uh, when you get to verse 15 of chapter 11, he picks back up again with the chronological flow of thought with the seventh trumpet judgment. And he says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So do you get the sense that we're getting closer and closer and closer to the return of Christ? Now the judgments are starting to specifically reference it and herald it. Um, so the, the full results of the sounding of the seventh trumpet are introduced here, but we don't begin to see the details until we get to chapter 16 with the bold judgments, which we will get to in uh, the coming weeks. He goes on, then the seventh, or, or I just didn't have it highlighted here, but so the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Uh, this is what will happen when Christ comes back and finally literally takes the throne in the temple in uh, Jerusalem. Now, at the beginning of the tribulation, as we've uh, talked about, uh, let me go back to my overview here. As we've talked about, there's a pre preparation period of some 75 days according to Daniel 12. And the uh, uh, satanic temple or the tri tribulation temple that the Antichrist desecrates will be destroyed. The temple that Christ will actually physically reign from is described in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, and it will take some time for it to be built. But in a largely perfect world where sin is held in check, it won't be completely absent because people will be born, uh, and those people will be born sinners, and they will eventually sin like all sinners do. Uh, but at the beginning of the millennium, so you see the, in purple there the millennium, at the beginning of that time, there will be no unbelievers. So it will be, in, in large manner, a perfect world with perfection himself ruling on the throne. So, you know, when you're not dealing with, you know, contractors and unions and city ordinances and permits, you can get things done pretty fast. And so the, the millennial temple will be built fairly quickly, even with all of its grandeur and scope, and Christ will take the throne. He's not going to come back on the Mount of Olives as we see described in Revelation 19 and walk into the temple and take the throne. It will take some time for it to be built, but he will eventually uh, take, uh, take the throne. So um, notice the 24 elders. We've talked about that before. That's the church, you and I, who sat before God on their thrones, fell on the faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. This is what, uh, and we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 16, and I talked about this in my message in Duluth here recently, but this is what we call a proleptic, meaning an anticipation or kind of a speaking of something that's going to happen in the future as if it's already happened um, uh, with confidence. Uh, and so that's, he's just describing what's going to happen even though it hasn't happened yet, but as I've suggested, the final seven bowl judgments all happen within a two, three-day period, as best we can tell, in conjunction with the Battle of Armageddon. So 
by the time they're being announced, we're very, very close uh, to the end. Notice the nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You realize that, you know, even though we know based on declassified and leaked documents that the whole climate change agenda is a scam, there are really bad people, Luciferians, that really are destroying the earth right now. So we know that this whole world is under the, the curse of sin. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that even the earth itself is groaning, waiting to be clothed in the redemptive sense of being recreated in the, in the per, sinless perfection. So the Bible is going to come full circle. And the curse of sin, which is pervasive now, it doesn't just affect mankind, it affects everything, uh, will be uh, removed. And, and so these people, the enemies of God and the uh, co-conspirators with Satan and the Antichrist are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And notice the time of the dead that they should be judged is a reference there to the great white throne uh, judgment. And so we know this is getting nearer and nearer to the end. Now the great white throne doesn't happen until the end of the millennium, but the fate of those that will be appearing at the great white throne is sealed at the moment Christ comes back. They're, they're cast, uh, uh, you know, they're waiting for that final judgment. Uh, and then verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in the temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Now we need to remember uh, what we read about in Hebrews. If you've been coming to Plum Creek for very long, you know we did a 33-week series in Hebrews on Sunday mornings. And Hebrews makes it very clear that there is a heavenly temple that's, that is a reflection or that serves as a reflection of the earthly temple. What, what John is looking at here is the one in heaven. He specifically says that. Uh, so uh, it, the, the opening of the temple pictures the immediate fellowship with God that believers will enjoy for all of eternity uh, after this time of judgment has ended. John saw the Ark of the Covenant which is, of course, is going back to Old Testament times, the emblem of God's faithfulness, His presence, ultimately His atoning work that was symbolized through the sacrificial system. Now, the last chronological reference we have in Scripture to the ark is in 2 Chronicles 35.3. Um, we don't know what happened to it after that. A lot of scholars believe it perished when Nebuchadnezzar burned the temple in 586 B.C., um, or maybe sometime after that during the Babylonian captivity, they took it. But there was no ark in the second temple, Herod's temple that was built in the time of Christ. I mean, it was built before Christ, but it was built over 70 years, I think, something like that, many numbers of years, maybe more than that. But uh, the one that was standing during the ministry of Christ on earth 2,000 years ago, there was no ark in that temple. John's not looking at the earthly ark, because there won't be the ark in the tribulation temple either. He's looking at its heavenly counterpart. And uh, I think what God, John, God is revealing to John is that God is going to be faithful and would soon fulfill His covenant promises to Israel as promised going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. So the chapter closes with another dramatic cosmic events, the lightnings, the noises, the thunderings, the earthquake. Um, and, uh, and we see this again portending 
cataclysmic events to, to end this, the tribulation period, the great day of the Lord's wrath coming very, very, very soon. So that's all for the trumpet judgments. Do we have any quick questions before we close? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is about those angels that the Bible tells, those demons that the Bible tells us were bound at the river Euphrates. I think it's just a geographical reference. Um, apparently, because, you know, of course, the river Euphrates is a key landmark in the entire Holy Land and involved with all of these things, the Battle of Armageddon. The Euphrates River has to be dried up for the battle, the armies in Armageddon to come across it. So it's just a geographic reference, and apparently those demons have been bound up there for that specific moment in time, waiting. And they need, that's where they needed to be, so that's where they were chose, that's where God chose to bind them up. That's the best I can say. Anyone else? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, they're definitely the uh, church because the church because they're already rewarded. They've already the, the question is how do we know the 24 elders are the church? So we talked about this early on when we did Revelation 4 and 5 several weeks ago, uh, but we know that they've already been rewarded and the church is rewarded at the rapture. The Old Testament saints are not rewarded until the second coming, according to Daniel 12 and Isaiah uh, 26. So we have a chart in our chart book on when believers of each time in human history receive their glorified bodies, and the Old Testament saints do not receive their glorified bodies, according to Scripture, until the second coming. So the ones in heaven at this time during the tribulation are the church. Okay, well, let's uh, stop there. Again, uh, for those of you here, our service will start at about 10 o'clock. So take a few moments here, grab some coffee, stretch your legs, and we'll come back together at 10. Those of you live streaming, we don't start the live stream until the message portion of our service. So that's generally 1025 to 1035, somewhere in that range, give or take a couple minutes. But I would start live streaming uh, at about 10.20, just to make sure you catch us whenever we, uh, we get to that point in the service. All right? Thanks. God bless.